I'm Maverick Peters, and this is Money with Maverick. Hi, my name is Eddie Knezovich. I am a financial professional in the financial services world, been in the business for 11 years, and I help people take complex financial situations and make them simple. All right, so Eddie Knezovich, let's talk about the specifics of life insurance. What happens if I miss a payment? Depends on which type of policy you have. In a term policy, generally speaking, the coverage will lapse. In a permanent policy, it depends on which year you're in the contract, but let's just say you've been paying into something for 10 years, you've been paying premium payments for 10 years in a permanent policy, and you decided all of a sudden that you couldn't make a payment for a month or a year or something like that. There could be enough cash value or dividend growth inside of that particular policy that you may not have to make payments for a handful of years. Again, arbitrary, it all depends on your situation, but there are a lot of flexibility and features with permanent insurance as time goes on. Are there any exclusions or limitations? No, it doesn't. And believe it or not, insurance is really interesting. So unlike other types of vehicles that you can place capital, like Roth IRAs or traditional IRAs or SEP IRAs or 401ks, there are no max limits on what you can contribute into a permanent life insurance policy. So they do have some really cool tax advantages with respect to that stuff. They're also built on a first in, first out basis. So you pay premiums, the money grows inside of it tax deferred. And when you go to pull your capital out, it's the first dollar that you put in that's coming out first. So all of those can be accessed on a tax-favored basis and could potentially be pulled out tax-free if pulled out in a proper manner. Back up just a little bit for a second. So for those listening who don't know, premium and capital, what does that mean? Premium is just your payment. Money, okay, the money monthly payment. payment. Yeah, yep. And when it's tax-favored, that means when it comes to the end of the tax season and I'm filing my taxes, how does my life insurance policy affect that? Well, because you're paying into it with all after-tax money, you don't owe any tax on any of the money that's paid in. You're not getting a tax deduction, like you're not reducing any of your tax liability. But when you go to pull that money back out, the first dollar that you put into it, you're getting that out tax-favored or tax-free. You don't have to pay any tax on the money that comes out of that. Tell me, Eddie, the best case scenario, right? So we talked about the three different kinds, term or temporary, yep, and then universal, and then whole life or permanent. Yep. If somebody applies for a life insurance policy and they can basically have their pick of whichever policy, what is the best case scenario? Best case scenario is to get into with one of the top premier carriers in a mutual participating, high early cash value, limited pay policy. The reason being a couple things. One, your cost of insurance inside of the permanent contract that's on a limited pay chassis is going to be the cheapest um, because you're condensing your payments down into a very small amount of time, but you're giving the time frame, your entire life, your entire balance of your life for that money inside of it to grow. So your death benefit is going to be significant relative to what you paid into it. Your cash value, money that you can access while you're alive, will also be significant compared to what you paid into it. So what I always say is you want to look at limited pay policies. Limited pay meaning you only pay for them for 10, 12, 15, 20 years, and the insurance company guarantees the death benefit all the way until age 121. So think about it kind of like buying a house. So I go back to mortgages. I use real estate a lot in my comparisons, but think about it like buying a house. When you're paying rent to a landlord, you'll be renting that property forever. That's term insurance. 
When you own a property, you pay for it for 20 years or 30 years or 25 years, depending on what kind of mortgage you bought, and then you own that house. But the house, the value still continues to grow after you paid the house off. So it's the exact same thing in life insurance. The value inside of it, the death benefit, as well as the cash value are gonna continue to grow all the way until death, um, even though you're not paying for it anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, what contributes to that growth? So what contributes to it is the insurance carriers, I'll back up a little bit, insurance companies, they sell all these products, okay? About 80 to 85% of the industry sales are in these temporary products. Believe it or not, only less, and this is Limra. Limra does a study every single year, and they basically go out and survey all the different insurance companies, and they ask them, how much in death benefit did you guys pay out in relation to premiums with term insurance? Believe it or not, it is less than 1%. So literally, if the industry sales are let's just call it $100 billion. It's a lot more than that, but let's just say it's $100 billion. Okay, $80 billion of that is all term insurance and only 1 billion of that is ever being paid out to the customers. So 20 billion is gonna be these permanent and semi-permanent policies like universal life and whole life. Now, a significant amount higher of those policies are actually paying out death benefits because we all know we're going to die. We just don't know when. So why do you guys think as consumers, the insurance companies jam the term stuff down your throat because it's a profit machine for them. If they were all in the permanent business only and they didn't sell term insurance, they wouldn't make money. So that's why they advertise buy term, invest the difference because it makes them money. They know in 10 years, you're not going to die. So they're going to collect all that revenue as profit. And then what they do is they take that money and they invest it in tax-free municipal bonds. They invested in real estate. They invested in the stock market. They invested in loans. And then they take those profits and they pay those out in form of a dividend to their permanent policy holders. So your cash inside of your policy actually grows because just like with a publicly traded company, when you're a shareholder, when you're a policy holder, when you own a permanent policy with a mutual participating company, you own a piece of that company. So every single year, those dividends get paid out to those owners of that company by having that insurance policy. How soon can I start opening up a life insurance policy? You can open one up as soon as you are born. You just have to have a social security number. So I actually have policies on my children. I've got policies on my wife, got policies on myself. But yeah, you can open them up as long as they have a social security number and they have a date of birth as soon as they're born. So I got them on my kids right when they were born. I put them in limited pay, limited pay policies as well so that when they turn 20, they don't have any future premium payments, And but the policy will still live until forever. And it's a huge return on investment, even on the cash value side for the younger you are, the younger you get them, the better it is long-term for you. Okay. So that's great. So I love, I love how you guys are planning ahead. What is the average age that somebody signs up for one? Average in the industry, I think is like people start to really buy this stuff in their late thirties, early forties, which is too late. It's not too late. No, it's not too late. It's, it's industry average. You know, we even get clients to get into their forties and their fifties that start to buy this stuff, but even had clients later in life that are in their 60s and 70s that acquire it just because they need it for final expense or things like that. But it's always recommended the earlier that you can get it, the better for your situation, generally because you're healthier and you're younger. In the eyes of the insurance company, you're further away from death yesterday than you are today. Right. So somebody who applies for life insurance at age 60, they're having in mind like funeral arrangements, like that kind of thing. Yeah. But they're going to be paying more a month. Significantly more. Anyone and everyone can have a life insurance policy as long as you have a social security. Not anybody. Remember, you have to medically qualify. 
So you have to medically qualify. Now in the United States, believe it or not, this is actually interesting. Australia, Australia, the country of Australia does not sell permanent life insurance. Why is that? They, they, they banned it a couple of years ago. I have no idea why, but the country of Australia does not allow for, I don't know if it was an insurance practice thing across the country, but they don't sell permanent. They only sell term insurance in Australia. You do have to be, so to buy with the carriers that I'm talking about, you have to be a U.S. citizen. You have to have, a, you have to, you know, be a U.S. taxpaying citizen. Every country is different, but in the United States of America, you have to be a U.S. citizen. You have to have a driver's license. If you're, if you are buying one on a juvenile, the parent has to own it. They have to have insurance on themselves. They also have to have, have an active driver's license and you can't buy more coverage on your children than you can on yourself. So like they also have like some rules there. So like the parents don't try and hack their kids off and make a bunch of money off their kids' deaths. But yeah, you can get them as, I mean, I got mine with both my children when they were under one years old. What's an example, if you could paint a picture for us, of a person who can't get life insurance? Obviously, you know, they pay taxes, they have their ID, they have everything else, but their health isn't in line. Yep. So health isn't in line. They've had cancer. They've had a stroke. They've had some, and every, every insurance carrier is different. There are some insurance carriers that are more strict on medical underwriting. There are some that are less strict on medical underwriting. But what I would tell you is generally speaking, it's going to be people that are unhealthy or have unfavorable health ratings. It's going to be people that are within, in the eyes of the insurance company, they're going to die soon. The insurance company isn't comfortable taking on that risk. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like compare it to something in real estate. It'd be like buying a, you know, a home in Tornado Alley. There's a lot of homeowners insurance companies that aren't going to underwrite your house if you're in Tornado Alley. Florida, you can't get flood insurance. Okay. Reason being is because there's a lot of hurricanes. It's the exact same thing. So insurance companies aren't dumb. They know what their risk tolerance is and what they can and cannot take on. So they have certain types of health things that they won't underwrite for. Now, some of them have gotten more liberal over the years and have opened up things that they wouldn't do. Like there's, you know, when I first got into the business, if you had AIDS or HIV, you couldn't get insurance coverage 11 years ago. Now, a lot of these companies will allow for it if it's controlled because they found that AIDS isn't killing people anymore. Now it can be managed. You can have AIDS and you can still, so like that's something in the last couple of years that I've seen where I used to have people get, I had, you know, prospective clients early on that would be a total decline. Now they can get coverage. Might be subrated or or heavily rated coverage, but they can still qualify for something. So the industry's changed drastically over the last five or six years. So somebody who applies for life insurance, let's say in their thirties, when they were younger though, they did have a condition. If they were diagnosed with cancer, and then beat it, and now they're perfectly fine, can they s- still apply and get approved for life insurance? Yes. So there's there, every, again, every insurance carrier is different. Some carriers will have like a five-year limitation period or a 10-year limitation period. It all just depends on, you know, your health rating, your medical, what what exactly they're going after. But yes, to answer your question, there are carriers and companies that will allow for you to get re-underwritten for something if medical history is good for X or Y number of years. How much of my paycheck should I expect to put into my life insurance policy or my spouse's life insurance policy? I always tell people that it should never be more than 5% of your overall asset allocation into what you're saving for your future. Um, When you start to get higher net worth and bigger wealth, you'll see people put more away. But generally speaking, it should be a very small piece of everything that you're doing on an annualized basis if that is going to be a part of your assets for the future. Now, there are certain cultures, though, that think very differently. So I work with some very, very devout Hasidic Jewish people in New York. They believe in their culture 
and I don't know if it's in their book, I could be, but that they're supposed to leave behind, they're supposed to enrich their family upon their death. So they believe that every dollar should go into permanent life insurance and that they can't invest in stock markets. They can't put money into, so in their culture, it's very different. There are other cultures out there that feel the exact same way that like they're not allowed to earn interest in certain types of accounts. Insurance is something that they can utilize. So it all just depends. But generally speaking, there's a rule in our industry, an unspoken rule of like 5% or less is generally what we recommend. Okay. And do I pay forever? No. On all three different types of policies, I don't pay forever. Well, take that back. On all three types, it all depends on what you get. Okay. Okay. So term insurance, no, because the term is going to expire at some point. Universal life insurance, you could potentially, or you may not. It depends on how it's structured, how the investment performs, all of that kind of stuff internally. Depends on what the cost of insurance is when you acquired it. And then on whole life insurance, you don't have to pay for it forever. At some point in a well-structured, properly structured permanent life insurance policy, you either have two, two things you can do. You can either if you buy a limited pay policy, it's already paid up at a certain date. Or if you buy a permanent pay policy that you pay for until death, there is some things you can do like a premium offset where you can use the cash value growth and dividends to offset that cost and pay for that, have it pay for itself into the future. So no, you don't have to pay for it forever. You can borrow against your life insurance policy. Can you explain how that works? Yes, I can. So there's, there is, there's a concept out there in the market that's been floating around for the last couple of years. The most common name for it, what you probably hear about is called the infinite banking concept. There's other people that call it the like become your own bank method, that kind of stuff. So there are a lot of like gurus out there that float the idea of putting money into insurance and then being able to utilize that as a tool to then invest in other places. So like we have friends, people that we are close with. And we, we know people that do it this way where they'll deploy capital like their own cash into their insurance plans. They'll grow their cash value up to a certain amount and they're not buying the policy for the death benefit. They don't, that even though that the insurance broker sold it to them for the death benefit, they're buying it for the cash value, the cash increase. And what they'll do is they'll then take that cash increase and they'll pledge that all the money they have inside of their cash value. uh, They'll pledge that against a, for example, line of credit. They'll then take that line of credit and they'll use it to acquire something that grows money somewhere else. So maybe they'll invest in the stock market. Maybe they'll invest it in real estate. Maybe they'll invest it in buying a franchise business like a Subway or McDonald's. And then they'll grow that asset and then they have their dollar. They just, it's a wealth multiplication tool. They've taken their money and put it into one place but grew it in two separate places on that exact same dollar. Can you do that with any kind of life insurance policy? No, there's only one type that you can. So it's it's interesting that and this is one of the big misconceptions in our market that we see a lot of. There's a lot of people that I see online and I'm always like, man, it makes me cringe because like as a professional, I, I hate when I see people that lie to people. But so a lot of people say, oh, you can borrow against your death benefit. That is a huge misconception. It is only against your net asset or cash value. The other thing that really drives me nuts is is people will say that you can borrow against your universal life policies. You can pull out of your universal life policies if you've met the surrender charge timeframe, but the only type of policy that you can actually truly borrow against is a mutual participating whole life insurance policy. And really this it's it's really actually simple if you think about it. The reason being is because the banks when they're guaranteeing an asset, 
it has to be stable. It can't be something with a lot of risk or sizable risk. So for them, they don't want something that's very volatile. They want something that's very stable that they're going to give you a line of credit or something again. So permanent life insurance, whole life insurance makes sense in that. Universal life where it's variable, where it's tied to the markets doesn't really make sense for that. Does my lifestyle affect the kind of plan I have? If I'm a NASCAR driver, is my policy going to be more expensive? Definitely. Yes. So there are, there are certain types of activities. Again, it's all insurance carrier driven, but there are certain types of activities that will warrant a higher cost depending on what you do. The most common ones I see are skydiving, base jumping, snorkeling, scuba diving, and race car driving or motor vehicle racing. Those are the most common ones that you'll see that the prices are generally a lot higher. What's an example of how high those prices would be? Again, it's, I hate to be flippant, but it's all based on the insurance carrier and it's all based on actuarial tables. So it, it's all based on cost per $1,000 of coverage. So it all, it all depends on your age, your health rating, what the activity is. There's like all these factors that play into it, but it's definitely going to be significantly higher for somebody that partakes in one of those activities, no matter what age you are. If I start off with a certain kind of policy, can I convert it? Can I change it into a different one? Certain companies and certain provisions will allow for that. So what I always tell people is like, you want to look for convertible term insurance if you're going to start with term insurance and you want convertible term insurance with a carrier that will allow for a like to like conversion. So like certain companies, like I'll give you an example, like for example, Mass Mutual. Mass Mutual, you can buy a term policy with them for 10 years or 20 years and you have certain privileges inside of that policy to convert it throughout that contract without going back through medical underwriting. So what a lot of people do is they'll lock their insurability in in their 20s and their 30s and they'll say, I've got a million dollars in death benefit for the next 20 years and I'm paying 50 bucks a month, okay? If in five years, all of a sudden they're diabetic, they're never gonna qualify in at that high rating that they qualified in at. But they can convert a portion or all of that into whole life at their original health rating at today's age without going back through the hoops or without getting their rating changed to today's health, if that makes sense. So a lot of people will buy term insurance that is fully convertible into permanent insurance down the road. There's a lot of little details that can play a part into your plan, what kind of plan you get. Should the average consumer, should they be educated on all this or can a broker help them with all of it? I think they should be educated on it. I also think a broker would be a fabulous resource for them. I mean, yeah, if, if, if they don't have one in their corner, there's there's plenty of places to go out there and seek help and, and get this kind of advice, but they definitely want to work with a broker. Eddie, I'm ready to go get my life insurance policy. How do I determine the reputation of the company? How do I make sure that it's going to be a good place and I can trust them? Great question. So you're going to look at A&M Best, Moody's, Fitch, all the rating companies, and you're looking at who are the top rated carriers in whatever space you're looking in. So, and then after you get fully underwritten, you compare and find out, you know, which which company do you like? Which one has a long-standing history of, of paying out death benefit claims? Which one has a long-standing history of paying dividends to their clients? And then you just make the determination which is the best fit for you. How important is it that somebody gets a life insurance policy? I think it's extremely important from a foundational perspective because if you run any Monte Carlo simulator on somebody's future with respect to their investments, their insurance, all of the above, without insurance, plans fail 99% of the time. With insurance, plans are successful 99% of the time. So it's literally a one-to-one -one ratio on whether it works or it doesn't work. So people that don't have insurance, they're literally rolling the dice saying, if I don't die, which 
It's the only guarantee in life. We're all going to die. You don't know when. So if you're going to roll the dice and say, maybe if I don't die in this time frame or this time frame, I'll beat all the odds. If it doesn't happen, your entire family is up creek without a paddle and, and it just puts everybody in a world of hurt and it could have been avoidable. The one thing I see all the time, I see these GoFundMes on Facebook for somebody that passed away unexpectedly, their family's got to pay for the funeral and I'm always like $10 a month. They're raising $40,000 for their family to pay for the funeral and it's like literally $10 a month, about 10% of that entire cost over a 5, 10, 15 year time frame could have taken care of all that and you wouldn't have had the family stressed out trying to figure out how are we going to pay for this funeral. It, it just, it, it almost just seems selfish and irresponsible for people not to have it. Hey, before you go, thanks for listening to this episode of Money with Maverick. If you enjoyed the show, share it with a friend. And remember to meet me over on YouTube to catch my video summary series. You can send me an email at moneywithmav at gmail.com. And for more fun content, visit at moneywithmav on Instagram. Catch you guys in the next one.